Welcome everyone back to the Cake and Batter podcast. Uh, I am Jake, and we are also joined by Cole, like always. And today we are going to be talking about The Hateful Eight. Uh, Hopefully you saw our last podcast talking about I Am Mother. And if you did, then you probably saw The Hateful Eight for this episode. Um, Just like last time, uh, we will be getting into a whole lot of spoilers. So make sure that either you saw the film or that you don't care. So, sorry, go ahead. No, no, I was just waiting for you to start trying to stop the silence. This is a wonderful podcast already. Well, I mean, we've really only started. We're only about a minute in, so. (laughs) (laughs) So, um, alright. So, yeah, hopefully y'all have seen The Hateful Eight, and let's go ahead and get into it. Written and directed by uh, my favorite filmmaker, Quentin Tarantino. Um... I don't know uh, how you feel about him, Cole. I know uh, I know you you haven't seen every single one of his films, but how do you feel about him from the movies that you've seen? Well, from the movies I've seen, which are pretty much just Pulp Fiction, um, Kill Bill, and The Hateful Eight, um, I would probably say that I, I like Quentin Tarantino. Um, is he my favorite filmmaker? I'm not entirely sure. I mean, that's completely up for debate, more or less. Just like I don't feel like I haven't seen all of it since I haven't seen all of his movies. I don't think I can make a clear and yeah, concise like choice on whether or not he's my favorite. But he certainly, I don't think there's been a movie of his that I've watched that I have not enjoyed thoroughly. And it's very hard to get me to watch movies more than once because if I see a movie once, I can pretty much remember the pretty much remember it, and I never really have to watch it again. But I guess for Quentin Tarantino, his movies have um, uh, like a rewatchability to them, yeah. to where I don't, where I feel like I can watch the movie again, and I can be just as enthralled and just as brought in to the movies themselves, you know, without having to worry about you know whether or not I'm going to get bored watching the movie. Right. And I think Hateful Eight is uh, definitely not is definitely not an exception to that. I completely agree. The Hateful Eight is a lot of people. A lot of people uh, were disappointed with the Hateful Eight. I I think it really still is a masterpiece, uh, in in his body of work. Yeah, I definitely think I have to agree with you with that because I I love that movie is awesome. Like I had no issues with that movie. That movie was really really good. So even um, at even at clocking in at uh uh like 3 hours it yeah, still doesn't even feel hours. like it. No, it really doesn't. You you can sit I mean it's it's strange the way that the movie is because you're sitting there and you're watching the movie and you think that you know just a couple like 30 minutes have passed and then you look at the clock, you know, after you're done watching the movie and you're like, wow, it's really been three hours? I've sat around right. for three hours watching this movie? I was completely baffled when I saw the film. I but think... I think I think you got I think you were more lucky than me when it comes to watching the movie because you got to see it during its roadshow. Yeah, I did. For uh for those of you who don't know, um The Hateful Eight, when it came out back in twenty fifteen, uh Quentin Tarantino decided to go all out. And he had what he called the Roadshow Presentation, and it played for only two weeks in a certain amount of theaters, and it was it was longer. It was about uh, 15 or so extra minutes in the film, and there was also a uh, there was an overture before the film even began. So it played music for about six seven minutes before it even began, and in the middle there was a 15 minute intermission as well and it was it was certainly an experience i saw it at music box theater in chicago and it was certainly certainly a great experience i know it sounds a little corny to say that it was probably one of the best experiences i've ever had but i did have a great crowd that i saw it with at music box so i'm happy to say that it actually was one of the best experiences of my life 
Yeah, so before we go into those 15 minutes that you got to see that I didn't, I think we should probably go over the plot of the movie. Yeah. So, The Hateful Eight takes place after the Civil War, during the... During, like, when the Wild West was still, like, a thing. And it follows... It's more... I think it's more of, like, an ensemble movie, really. It is, Like, there, there really isn't a character that takes priority over everybody else. I think that every character has the same amount of weight to them. They really do, and that's actually what makes the film uh, really pop off the screen, in a sense. Yeah, but the first character you start with is... Um, what is his what is his ranking uh, uh who, major, major marquis warren yeah major marquis warren um you see him first and he is on the he's in the middle of the road with a bunch of dead bodies and he hails down a stagecoach that's on their way to the town of uh, red rock or red rock it's red rock and when he eventually convinces the people to uh let him ride with him because he finds out that he's actually met the guy in the stagecoach before, and they're both bounty hunters. Yeah. And he is carrying along a live bounty because his handle, or like his calling, is uh, the hangman. And his whole shtick is that he, if you get caught by him, normal bounty hunters will kill you when it says wanted, dead, or alive. They'll just kill you and bring you back because it's easier to transport you. But the hangman believes in justice and wants nothing more than to watch you get hanged so if you get caught by the hangman you're gonna hang you're not gonna die from a bullet in the back of the head he thinks that that's too good for criminals and they end up getting caught up in a blizzard and have to stay at an inn is it an inn Uh, it's a haberdashery yeah it's a haberdashery and they end up getting caught up in a haberdashery for two days while they're waiting the blizzard out but when they get there things aren't really what they seem yeah so they they end up meeting with uh obviously a few strangers um at the haberdashery who um really no one is trusting of anyone in this film that's really what this film is about it's about it's about the truth you know who is who is lying who is who is who and what is what that really is the actual um, point of this movie because it it really is a whodunit at its core. yeah and i mean there's even clues for the viewer to figure out throughout laden throughout the movie you know there some shots that seem kind of out of place are showing off clues to when you find out about probably two-thirds of the way through you find out what happened and you see how the rest of it plays out right um but you you don't get the whole you don't it's not like there's not a lot of dramatic irony in this movie, which I think we mentioned. Did we mention it when we were talking about I Am Mother? Did we, we mention did. dramatic irony? Yeah, we talked about it a bit, yeah. Yeah, so there is some dramatic irony to the movie, but um, it only really comes in once, once all the pieces have been laid out. So you still know about as much as the characters in there do um, until it's relevant to the story. But you right. can figure out what is going on throughout clues through the movie, through character conversations, um, certain pieces of the set that seem out of place. You know, um, for instance, there's a there is a part of the movie where one of the characters is walking <clears throat> to the table with food, and they stop and they look under their foot, and there's a jelly bean in between the floorboards, which you don't mm-hmm. end up you end up finding out that the strangers that are at the haberdashery are actually um part of the posse that the bounty that uh the hangman is trying to bring in and they killed everybody there and held the place up and you see him knock down candy and stuff like that and that's just one of the pieces that they forgot to clean up yeah it's uh that the jelly bean is you know it's one of the first little pieces you see in the film that that makes you just go what what happened here you know yeah and you know watching it on your first time through you don't understand the significance of the jelly bean but yeah. you understand that there's something amiss from the way that the place looks because the place is pretty much clean but if everything's clean then why would there be a single jelly bean in between the floorboards that somebody missed 
Especially exactly. because the color is so contrasting to the floor itself, with the floor being brown and the jelly bean being red. It, um, you know, the, uh, talking about the jelly bean, in addition to the jelly bean, the, one of my, one of my favorite things that, uh, isn't even talked about, you know, I, I like to talk about how much I love the dialogue in this film, but before we get to that, one of the most visual things that I like about this film is another piece of the puzzle of putting putting the the tarps and the blankets and stuff over the chair oh yeah you know after they kill um his name is sweet dave right yeah after they kill sweet dave and um they they do that just to cover up the blood and hoping you know uh that nobody will notice but it takes warren who's been there before like two he's seconds. eventually he's eventually the one to figure out the puzzle but i think i think he always had an inkling in the beginning because yeah of with uh what is his name is his name is the character's name bob or is yeah. like that his actual name well no that's not his actual name is uh in the end you find out uh marco the mexican oh yeah that's right yeah but we call yeah, him so bob he, i'm yeah, bob so bob is the name of the guy that's quote-unquote taking care of the place while uh sweet dave and many and many are quote-unquote out of town and yeah. samuel l jackson's character warren is uh, always very um skeptical and you can see it in the conversations that he has with bob especially you i i am automatically had a feeling that um bob or that Minnie and sweet dave were pretty much were pretty much confirmed dead through the conversation that samuel l jackson had with bob in the stable when they first get there oh you did yeah yeah i did because it talks about um it was i i could feel it through the dialogue you could you could see you know you could see bob's gears turning when samuel l jackson cornered him a couple times in that conversation yeah i thought maybe i didn't know if they were dead but i i of course you know i was you know thinking something's up first time i saw it but i didn't know you know are they dead or they just you know did they do something to them you know i wasn't sure see i didn't know that everybody in the i didn't know that everybody in the um in the haberdashery were all part of a posse that was the thing that i didn't know but i didn't know one thing i did know that bob did something to either get rid of minnie and sweet dave and i mean it's a quentin tarantino movie like nobody gets i don't think there's very many quentin tarantino movies where people get like where like side characters get like kidnapped or like trapped or tied up from the ones that i've seen i I can't remember and the only time like i mean in kill bill the bride gets trapped but But she's the main character she's the main character so you know she's gonna make it out but I mean, just having it being a Quentin Tarantino movie, I automatically kind of knew. I'm like, well, Quentin Tarantino is going to... Obviously, somebody's going to die. Right. So... When it comes to Quentin Tarantino movies, there's always uh, there's always a part in your brain when you're watching the movie, knowing that it's a Quentin Tarantino movie kind of helps you move the story along in your head. Because yeah. you almost you almost know uh, what style it's going to take. You may not know what what the plot is going to be but right. you, you automatically you always have like an inkling it's, yeah it's like um it's it's like when you're playing bingo and you have that free space in the middle yeah you know? you're right it's it's kind of it's kind of like um you know it being a quentin tarantino where you're always expecting some over-the-top violence right yeah and that's that's what definitely helps when you're watching because you know it's gonna happen you know it's gonna happen. You just don't know when. You don't know when, or you don't know why it's gonna happen. And speaking of over the top violence, I think the part—I think one of the parts that really just caught me way off guard was um when Channing Tatum shot Warren right in the crotch. Yeah, right before yeah. chat, like right at the end of chapter four, wasn't it? Right. Right yeah. at the right at the uh, the end of chapter three. Um, what? Oh yeah, before the intermission. Oh yeah, that's right. Yeah, because chapter four is um chapter four is where they talk about um where they talk about how the haberdashery got held up. But yeah, like right there was just like I 
to be honest, like I like going through the credits, you see that Channing Tatum's going to be in the movie. But I was so enthralled with the movie, I totally forgot that he even existed as a character. <laughs> so, so by then, so by by then, I had no idea that Channing Tatum was hiding under the floorboards until he shot Samuel Jackson in the crotch. And right. then it goes under the it goes under the floorboards and it shows him. I'm like, oh yeah, that's right, he's in the movie. I forgot. Yeah, it, it's funny when you see those opening credits, um, and you see all the all the great famous names, and then on and then all of a sudden you see and Channing Tatum. I when I first I'm like, some doesn't fit right here. One of these doesn't belong. <laughs> that, that's what and I was it, thinking. It's really funny how much of like a how much of a minuscule role he plays in the film. Yeah. I, like, I don't, like, I wouldn't even, do you think that, like, Quentin Tarantino picked Channing Tatum to play that role because he likes Channing Tatum as an actor? Or, because, like, wasn't 2015 kind of the area where Channing Tatum was, like, in a lot of movies? So, actually, what had happened is um, Channing Tatum had gotten word that Quentin was making a new movie. And... Channing Tatum just spammed Quentin's phone like no other because he wanted the role in the film. And he annoyed Tarantino to the point where he just said, fine. Wow. And he got it and he got the role in the movie. And you can kind of see like that resentment because he's in the movie for like one minute before he gets his brains blown out <laughs> by Samuel L. Jackson. <laughs> and yeah. I was like, I was like, huh. You know, I kind of expected him to be there longer, but now that, now looking back on it and hearing that story, you can totally tell. You can totally tell that, like, Quentin's like, I'll give you your goddamn role. I'll give you your role. You want your role? Fine. Here it is. Two pages. You happy? I, lo- I love when he, st- when, he sticks his, uh, when he sticks his head out and, um, and he says hi, and he says hi, to, hi to Daisy. And she, and it's just like this, this heartfelt moment. And, and then, then just, just all, you see his head explode from the back all the way to the front. And then blood spatter all over Daisy. Yeah, and then she's like, she's like, he was surrendering! And then, and then Warren's like, well, he took too long. Yeah. <laughs> that, that has to be, you know, out of all things I, I sometimes expect from Quentin Tarantino, I didn't expect that. That was, it was like else. just. It was surprise, right after surprise in that one. It was. Like, there were so many, like, I don't, I don't even know if I would call them powerful. Just, like, intense. Just intense scenes. Scenes that had me on the edge of my seat, like, throughout the entire film. Like, there were some, like, moments of reprieve, you know, where the characters have, like, you know, parts where they're just kind of doing nothing. Yeah. But then, you, but, but those are spaced out, so those, so those scenes that you get into... Like you really just ooh that that like that just I was totally invested into those scenes. I uh speaking of scenes that uh you know are kind of intense versus powerful. Some uh, one scene in particular that I love in the movie because it just it slows down the tempo from mm-hmm. all the quick witty dialogue and the monologues, which of course I love. You know I Quentin Tarantino writes some of the best dialogue in film today but he also crafts some of the best uh some of the best just nothing scenes and the best i think the best scene in the movie has to be when daisy is playing the guitar oh yeah and because it just it slows down the tempo for about five six minutes and you just you just listen to her play the guitar but you you had that that uh, voiceover a minute earlier, letting you know that something was gonna happen, uh, because some letting you know that someone poisoned the coffee. Yeah. And so all that time of listening to that really slow, uh, that really slow scene of her just singing and playing the guitar, all the while you're thinking. But I know someone poisoned the coffee. Someone's gonna, someone's gonna, someone's gonna get sick. Someone's gonna die. Something's gonna happen. What's gonna happen? You know, and having having her play the guitar while you while with that dread underneath, 
I think is I think is the best part of the film. Yeah. I, I can agree with that. Definitely that's a scene. Um I think and the, it's going back to like poisoning the coffee, right? Like when you first saw the movie, who do you think did it? Before you found out that it was uh, the I, one guy. I was uh, I was on Chris Mannix's team. I thought it I thought it was the ugliest one in the room. I thought it was uh, I thought it was Joe Gage. You know, oh, Michael so Madsen. you were right. You did he he owned up to poisoning the coffee, didn't he? He yeah he did. Um, but even even though he owned up to it, it's still not clear who did it. Right. Because yeah, he owns it's up to it. Obviously, one of them because they're all on the same team. Right. See, for for a minute, for a minute, I thought it was Chris Maddox. You did? Yeah, mostly because Chris Maddox, like, he just, he just hated Warren at the beginning of the film. He was always trying to antagonize Warren, mm-hmm. you know? And for some reason, I mean, like, and obviously, you know, you know, he has that background... He's got that background of being of his dad owning, uh, being the leader of you know a rebels, a, a army of rebels, right? Yeah, yeah. So, and I thought I think that he was under the impression that you know he could kind of do the same thing, you know, and I don't know. Just for some reason, I thought it was Chris Mannix. You know, Chris Mannix is probably the most interesting character out of them all. Yeah, because. I... I think that I think he's the most interesting because there's this there's this dynamic, right? You know, they he says he's sheriff. He's the new sheriff of Red Rock because the last one got shot and they're getting there. He's got to get there to hang the guy who shot the last sheriff, right? Mhm. And the thing is no one believes him because he comes from a family of criminals. And um it's just such an interesting dynamic because you can't really figure out if he's telling the truth or not. Do you think personally that he was telling the truth? I'm indifferent. I think on one hand I think he does because of the way because of the way he acts, right? Um because clearly Chris Chris has this like he comes from a he come, he has this uh, tenacity towards Marquis, right? That you mentioned earlier. Yeah, he's always he, trying to antagonize Warren. He, yeah, he hates him, and uh, he tells a story about how Marquis, you know, blew up an entire uh, an entire. No, he burnt down. He burnt, burnt down. down I'm an sorry. Entire compound. Um, right. Of including some of his own men. Right, filled with soldiers, including his own men, and he he hates that about him. And not only that, but there's there's certain qualities that come off Chris that that of course make him seem like a racist, which would make him hate Marquis, right? Yeah. Especially since he he has such a love for General Sandy Smithers. Yeah. You know? But when it comes down to it. He helps Marquis in in the end, right? Like like a good sheriff should. And I think I think that like throughout the movie, Chris kind of starts to judge people not based off of you know their past and what they look like, but more based off of their character and their right. sense of justice. Because you know, Chris could have outright just tried to kill warren right then and there but he doesn't and yeah. and it and it takes him and it takes him to the end of the movie to realize that you know to actually go in and give justice where justice is due because he stops at the end when he's about to shoot daisy and warren's like hang on man she was captured by the hangman shooting her in the head's not good enough and he's like you're right she needs justice. Yeah. And then they hang her. And I think that scene, dude, that scene just had me grinning from ear to ear at the end of it. Because it's like, you see all this BS that they go through, you know? And 
you, and you also in that same scene you see you see Chris kind of learn something throughout his entire time there when he calls Daisy's bluff. Yeah. So that by, by that time he's he's grown as a character, you know, because he probably if he if new shiny Chris would have shown up then, you know, he would have outright been, you know, he would have outright probably thought Daisy was telling the truth. Yeah, yeah, I. But, but it takes him that time at the haberdashery to, like, learn what it means to be a sheriff. Right, and that's I think I think that that's what um, I think it's what ultimately um, changes changes his character, because you also see him um talk to uh, what's his name uh Oswaldo, um. Uh, Tim Roth's character. Yeah, the British guy. Right. And you see him talk to Oswaldo, and they look at the handbill for the guy who shot the last sheriff. And it's the same exact, and it's the, and it follows Chris's story. Right. But it's like, how, why, how would he know, and why would he care if he wasn't sheriff, you know? Right. And, and in the end, you know, he gets the satisfaction of doing the hanging himself, you know, which is on one hand he's delivering justice like the sheriff, like the sheriff's job, you know, that's mm-hmm. the sheriff's job, and second he's also delivering that justice by his own hand, which he shouldn't be doing though, because when uh, Oswaldo has a little monologue about frontier justice versus versus uh societal justice, justice right yeah and which is a very interesting monologue but that it comes up in the end scene because he's it's borderlining between frontier justice and societal justice talking about what they did earlier because he's doing his job to deliver justice but on one but the other hand he's doing it by his own hand and doing it out in the frontier and not doing it through the court like he should be yeah and even and i think that like i think this brings up a good case coming back to who is the main character of this of this movie and i think that there is a pretty good case that if there had to be a main character for the hateful eight i think it would be chris maddox really i i would say it would be marquis I mean, it could very well be Marcus too, but I feel like I feel like um, Chris Maddox follows pretty close to like the hero's journey almost. How so? Well, I mean, you know, there's the call, which is which is where Chris gets on the stable coach, right? Yeah. You know, and then he's. In his, uh, gosh, I wish I had, like, a, the paper that said, like, the hero's journey. Because I don't remember all the names. Don't be all textbook on us. I know, I, I know, but it's, I feel like I'm, you know, I feel like I'm sounding really dumb. But, like, there's the call to adventure, right? The stagecoach. He gets there, and now he's out of his comfort zone. He leaves, you know, his home, which is yeah. on the road. You know, he gets there, he meets all the people, he comes close to death with um, with the coffee, right? Yeah. He goes into the belly of the beast when, um, like, once he realizes he's in the belly of the beast is when the warren shoots Sandy Smithers, right? Yeah. Um, the, the, di- the monologue about um, justice and societal, frontier justice and societal justice is like uh, the advice from the wise man. Almost. Oh, it's yeah, like, okay, I can see that. And then his, you know, his weapon, his, like, he gets, what is it, what is it when the hero gets, like, the strength to defeat the evil? What is that called? There's a name for it. I don't know. But, like, that strength is, that strength is um, when he calls the bluff. Okay. Because he doesn't know. Yeah. But he's calling the bluff anyways. And then the return trip home is, 
you know, is him dying or, or it's implied that he dies. But like the hanging is right before the return trip home. You know, okay, it follow, yeah. like he, he follows. It's not an exact path, yeah. but it's it, it's close to the hero's journey. You know, and I feel like, and I mean, Warren, Warren doesn't have as many of those hit doesn't hit as many of those beats that Maddox does. Yeah, yeah. But I, I think that there's. I think if if I had like more time and I could watch the movie again and I could really like sit down and take notes. I think that there, I think that there's a pretty good case for Chris Maddox being the protagonist of the Hateful Eight. He's the hero. I guess I could see that now. Um, yeah, I definitely, I definitely see that now. Now that you uh, bring up, I guess the hero, the hero's journey, it does make a lot of sense. Um, I mean, whether he is or isn't, Walton Goggins saying, uh, steals the show as Chris. He really, oh does. yeah, he steals oh, no, the it, show. He, yeah. He is like you. You start by hating him, and you kind of learn to love him by the end of it. And I'm yeah. not. I'm not saying that. I'm not saying that Chris needs to be the protagonist. But like hypothetically, if there was, there's a case for it. But I, I think I the movie. That, yeah. I think the movie definitely works as a really good ensemble film because uh, not all yeah. movies need to have a protagonist. You know, because it's not like it's not like each character is insignificant. There's no side characters in the Hateful Eight. Well, OB. Every, well, yeah, but I mean, even he plays. Actually, you really don't know anything about Obi. Right. It's fun. It's funny because uh, it's called the Hateful Eight, but Obi's there, so technically it's the Hateful Nine. Yeah, but I guess he doesn't count because he's just the stagecoach driver. Right. Because then there's Minnie and Sweet Dave too. They're they're part of it, but they're not really hateful, are they? True, but I mean, bi- like Obi is a bystander. There. Obi is there when everyone else is, you know. Minnie and Sweet Dave aren't, you know. But the the Hateful hateful Eight with a bystander or a one. Right. (laughs) The Hateful Eight plus one. Right. The, uh, let's, let's talk about, you know, other characters, though. Stuff that they're, the, the actual side characters. I think this is one of the few movies where the side characters have just as much characterization as the main ones. There's Minnie, who feels like you know her the entire movie when you only get, like, ten minutes with her. Not even ten minutes. Yeah, and you like, get You, you get, get, like, so one much. conversation with her. There, it tells you... It, you, get, you get a sense of who she is as a person from just less than ten minutes with her, and I love well, that. Also, you also learn a lot about Minnie based on what Wallace t- uh, tells Bob, too. Warren. Oh yeah, that's right, Warren. Sorry, I got the names mixed up. My bad. Yes. <laughs> uh, yeah, you get you you learn more about who Minnie is too before you even get to see Minnie, you know, when she's alive, based on what Warren tells Bob and him calling Bob out. True, true. But seeing her seeing her in that flashback sequence makes her uh makes her stand out. You know, it makes her memorable because. She has, she has uh, so much chemistry, you know, with everyone else, and uh, the writing of her character is off the wall. It's off the charts good because you, you feel like you know her, and then it's hard to get less than ten minutes with a character and feel bad that someone killed them. Yeah, and yet you feel you feel awful that you're seeing her die. You know? Yeah, and like that's the thing. Like that's the thing that I was talking to one of my family members about earlier today, is that if a character dies in a movie, it won't have as much of an impact if I don't give a shit. Yeah, because yeah. my sister, my sister's been bothering me all summer to watch the newest season of Stranger Things, and this is this is part of the conversation, and I'm not going to go too far into it. But she keeps talking about this one character. Spoilers for Stranger Things season three, if any of you care. But she keeps talking about this one character named Alexi. Yeah. And I don't know who this guy is. And then when I finally get to him, I'm like, oh, he's just some Russian dude that they kidnapped. And he's in there for, what, two episodes? And then he gets shot? Yeah. I didn't... Like, there's nothing to this character that I actually... Like, that made me care enough to be upset or saddened when he died. I was like, oh, he's here? Oh, he's gone. 
And yeah. that's the thing. You can't kill somebody off unless you make the audience you can't kill somebody off and have the and have the emotional impact that you want if you don't have the audience care about the character first. I agree. The one of the one of the best things that that makes you care is how happy Minnie is. And she I love I love her interaction with Sweet Dave. And she said and she um Jody says we to her when he when um she asks if he speaks French. And he says we and um and she says to Sweet Dave, "Honey, ask me if my ass is fat." And he right. sa- and he says, "What?" And she says, "Just ask it." And he says, "But it is." And she says, "Just ask me." <laughs> and she, and she and he goes, "Is your ass fat?" And she goes, "We." Oui. And just from just from that little conversation, you're already smiling. You already love yeah, her. Yeah, because it's already already you get like you get these you get the relationship between these characters. And like speaking of flashback characters, a character that con- that like confused me as to like almost why they were there was uh, Sandy Smithers, because he's just there at the haberdashery when the posse breaks in and kills everybody, but they don't kill Sandy Smithers. And yeah, I don't know, and I don't know why. I also don't know why he complies, like why like why didn't they just kill him i think so jody says or not jody um bob says it makes uh it makes it look more believable that there's someone actually there you know yeah um one of them that's not them you know it's not their posse you know yeah and uh which i guess it does right and, yeah. But it is interesting that Smithers complies because, sure, he's an old man and he can't really do anything about it. But he was a general in uh, the, the Civil, Civil War. War. He so, was a Confederate general. Actually. Right. So you'd think he would have, you know, this huge gripe about it. But, you know, but that... he just kind of doesn't care. Right. He just He just says, I don't care about you or them or anybody for that matter. Which, I guess I can I can see that, but but you're right. It it's it's weird that he complies, but it's believable. It's believable yeah. enough, you know. What's yeah. not believable to me is that I find it weird that he's a Confederate general and supposedly hates uh, black people, and yet stays in Minnie's haberdashery. Yeah, that I found that was... weird. That was interesting, um, cause it's like, cause Minnie and Sweet Dave are an interracial couple, right? So you'd think that he would have a problem with that, but he doesn't. And maybe I don't know. Maybe, maybe he does, and you just don't see it. Maybe it's he just is there to hang out with Sweet Dave, and he doesn't care for Minnie, but he doesn't say anything because it's Sweet Dave's wife, you know. Well, I mean, it's not like he 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 knew them because he doesn't know he didn't know Minnie or sweet dave he just stopped there like the rest of them you know but um, you never see him get up either no because i think i think they told i think they told him to s- just sit tight in the chair you know oh yeah and just the, wait till it's over the closest he comes to getting up is, is when, when he Ma- reaches for the gun right and that's the closest time he gets to getting up and then he just warren shoots him and he falls out of the chair um but for the most part for the rest of the film he stays in that chair even when everyone else gets up to go to the table and eat you know and yeah. i think i think that's because i think he he's a general right and he's trained to give orders and follow orders that's true that could totally that totally makes sense and he was told sit in that chair be dotty be an old man that's it. So he's following orders like a good continuing, general. continuing with uh, General Sandy Smithers. It's interesting the coincidences that come up with him, because like it just so happens to be that Chris Maddox and uh, Marquez Marquez Warren, 
both show up at the haberdashery at the same time. And they both know General Smithers when nobody else knows General Smithers. I think it's because, you know, Chris Chris's father fought in the war with, with uh, Smithers. And Marcus knew him from the war as well, fighting against him. But... I mean, I think I think it's said that Marcus only knew him from reputation. Yeah. So it makes sense that they would both know him because one, he's his father's son, and then the other, he's fighting against one of one of the most outspoken Confederate generals, right? Yeah. So I think that um I think that makes sense. Plus, you know, everyone else is just you know they're just gang waiting for daisy to be freed so they couldn't care less i I just think that it's it's funny that it's like the coincidence that happens to smithers that makes him more than just an old man you know i agree it's 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 a great dynamic like if he wasn't if he was just any other regular old man and nobody knew him he wouldn't say anything right but he just so happens to be general you know sandy smithers and that also brings me to something else, too. Because you find out later in the movie that the the Lincoln letter that Marquez yeah. has yeah. is fake. Yeah, which is one of, one of my favorite things in the movie, but go on. Which makes me wonder again. If Marquez only knows Smithers from reputation, was Marquez's story at the end of Chapter 3 true? Or was he bluffing it just so he could kill Smithers? Yeah, see that's that's a good that's a good question because I don't know either. I think that Marcus was just trying to get rid of him. I think I think Warren really wanted a reason to snuff him out of existence. You know. So you think he made up that story? I think he did. But then there's also the foreshadowing to the story near the beginning of the movie where um what is the name of the hangman? I can't remember. John Ruth. John Ruth. Yeah. Is it John Root or Ruth? John Ruth. John Ruth. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So in the stagecoach, when uh, Warren is talking to, to Ruth, um, he mentions that people go out to try to kill him all the time. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And and nobody knows that. Like, nobody, nobody except for Ruth knows that. So why would Warren craft this elaborate tale just to kill smithers when he could have said anything else or i guess not i mean i guess the the thing i guess it makes sense like it makes sense the story that he told but for some but the foreshadowing makes me feel like the story is there's some factual evidence to the story being true i think that maybe uh, Marcus didn't tell. Marcus told a more hyperbolic version of the story. Maybe the guy showed up, and you know, maybe Marquez just killed him, and only found out who he was related to after he killed him. But I think that Marquez elaborated on details with the stealing his clothes and walking him through the snow just to get Smithers to grab the gun so he could shoot him. So you think the so you think that it actually happened, just not exactly how Warren was saying. Yes, I. I can see that, especially you bringing up, you know, some foreshadowment. But I do still think that once Warren heard about it being Smithers, and once he heard that um, his son was dead, he wanted to take advantage of that. And he, and so he made up a story just to, just to get a rise out of him, which is ultimately why he put the gun by uh by his chair so yeah because he was gonna because that was his entire plan all along yeah was to just tell him that story to get him to grab the gun and i think for the viewer i think the viewer um gets the impression gets to like almost gets a like a point of view from smithers because when warren is telling the story it shows the story playing out to the viewer yeah. And I think that that's, I think that that's, maybe that's not the way that it actually happened, or maybe it's an elaborate tale. But to Smithers, that's the truth. And that's how Smithers saw it happen. And you see from the framing and stuff 
you know, Warren looks devious and evil and he looks like he's the worst man on the planet. You know, almost to a sense that you feel sympathy for Smithers kid. Just based on the way that they shoot that shoot that that uh I wouldn't even, I wouldn't even is it a flashback? Is it a dream sequence? Cuz it's all based on whether or not the story is true. Yeah, I I don't know. That's a good question. I don't know. I guess I don't know what you would call it. I guess I would call it a flashback, but I guess it would it would be an unreliable flashback because you don't know. Um. But the thing the thing about uh, that story that uh, I love is in addition to everything else in the movie, it's really one of the biggest things that make you wonder who's lying you know makes you wonder if or not who's lying if he's lying you know because the entire movie you find out everyone's lying about something right and well was ruth lying about something or smithers because i don't think either of them were lying about anything but the thing is you don't know that's what i'm saying everyone seems to have a gripe about everyone for something you know john ruth is just seems to not like anybody right and he seems he's, to exaggerate himself right he's, he's paranoid but he like each character almost has their own antagonist exactly and because like, you know for for ruth and daisy that would be each other and for warren it's smithers and maddox for maddox it's you know it's um or even for maddox for warren, is like for Mannix, it's Joe Gage. He just hates him. <laughs> for some and, reason, and, he just hates and him. And Warren, too. Until, like, the end of the movie. And then, like, he, Warren's got, like, three antagonists. He's got, uh, for the part of the movie, it's uh, Maddox, and then it's Smithers, and then it's Bob. Yeah. You know, and then all the gang members, you know, hate everybody except for the old man. The old man hates Warren. Uh, you know it's everybody has like their own antagonist it's almost like a big old game of like rock paper scissors you're right it is the but going off that you know one of my i said like i said the my favorite scene is daisy playing the guitar but just after that is the dinner table scene where everyone's eating stew and chris ends up uh convincing john ruth that warren lied about the lincoln letter and that's that's your first uh your first um didn't didn't warren own up to it during that scene though yeah he did so that's your first time that you figure out okay he's a liar and now you question everything he says right because that's a big thing to lie about you know you were pen pals with the president that's a big thing to lie about and john ruth takes it really seriously he takes it to heart because it's like he thought that they were such good friends right and john ruth saw warren not as just another bounty hunter but as somebody he could confide in you know and you see that when they get there, he says, hey, you know, um, I'll protect your three dead guys, you protect Daisy, and I'll make sure that we both get out of this alive. And Warren's like, all right, deal. Yeah. The And, and like, that learning that the Lincoln letter is fake is like a breach in trust. Yeah. That Warren, that War- I'm assuming Warren probably didn't even see with Ruth. He just saw Ruth as another guy on the road giving him a ride. Well, it is, because that's actually exactly how he sees him, because he says, uh, you want to know why I uh, lied about something like that? It got me on that stagecoach, didn't it? So that's actually exactly how he sees him. He sees him as someone who can... uh, He can manipulate. Right, which, and in turn, he has a little monologue on why he has to do that, because being post-Civil War, he has to look out for stuff like that he needs to make him seem he makes he needs to make himself seem better than he uh than he is even if he's like the most perfect person in the world because it's post-civil war and which in turn 
not only makes you feel for the character of Warren, but you you're still also at odds with him because he lied about something so huge. And you you not only question everything he says, but you also have some kind of sympathy for him because of probably what he has been through in the war and, yeah, and previous societal implications of you know Warren's life past the civil war exactly so it ev- everything every every lie or every every uh time you think someone lies brings a new layer to the character and that's hard to do because you're questioning the character and it's hard to build characterization through lies, but yet Tarantino was able to do it in this film. And I think that that's, that's a great achievement. And I think, I, I think the, the Lincoln letter is like the perfect like symbolism for the whole movie itself because it's all based on a lie. Right. And in the end, you know, uh, um, oh my gosh, Maddox, you know, even though he criticized... Um, Warren for faking the Lincoln letter compliments him on the letter itself at the end of the film. Right. So he sees And then he that crumples a... it up and throws it away at the end. Right. Right. So he sees he sees that um it seems at the end he he kind of understood why Warren did it. But and he's still like... he still hates that it happened though. But he, in turn he sees the kind of, the kind of, uh, the kind of uh, hard-thinking person Warren is to think of, of, uh, of such a personal line for the Lincoln letter. Uh, uh, I think it was uh, something like "Old Mary Todd's calling for bed," so I, "Old Mary Todd's calling," so it must be time for bed. And so he sees that in Warren that he is actually a smart person to think of something so intimate to put in the letter. Yeah. And you know, and it's almost like um it's almost like with him throwing the letter away, it gives that that feeling of you know, sometimes it's necessary to lie. Yeah. And I mean, you know, we could always be thinking into this a little too hard because, you know, only only Tarantino knows the meanings behind the stuff and we're all just like inferring that kind of Of course, shit, you know? yeah. And like sometimes that's the thing. Like, when you think about, like, I, I'm, I know I'm going off on a bit of a tangent, but, like, it's interesting. When it comes to, like, you and me writing movies, right, we come to the, we have these ideas and we have these scenes and stuff, but we never have, like, our ideas for themes to somebody who's watching our stuff could appear completely different or way more, de- like, way more deep than what we actually think that they are. Yeah. That's, but that, I think that, yeah. I think that's part of the fun in, in, in thinking and discussing and, you know analyzing films as a whole because you could pull in everybody pulls a meaning out of a movie whether or not there is a meaning to begin with yeah i and it's I part of that, analyzing and it's part of analyzing sometimes when it comes down to analyzing stuff you know um you kind of to the person who made the movie you probably look like a bit of a schmuck you know because yeah, it's yeah. like you know how when you're in high school and your your english teacher is like oh the the blue curtains represent the 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 pain that the author feels in their heart when they're writing the movie. When in reality, it's like, ah, oh, that's just set design, dude. Right. There's no meaning behind that. I remember, um, I remember, um, was watching an interview with, I remember watching an interview with, uh, with, uh, uh, Jordan Peele about Get Out and all these crazy theories people came up with it, for it. And, um, he basically knocked down everyone's crazy theories and said uh no the movie's not about that it's really not as deep as you're making it out to be it's about this this and that you know yeah so i get what you're saying it's part of it's part of analyzing though it's and it is what makes it is what makes uh part of analyzing films fun you know yeah the uh we're running pretty uh pretty high on time now 
But um, I think yeah, before I, th- I think before we before we go though, let's talk a little bit about the dialogue real quick. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Because that is the meat and potatoes of this film, or the the chicken stew, if you will, of this film. <laughs> oh, speaking of chicken stew, do you think that the stew was Minnie's? Was Minnie? No. No. That was, I that mean, was yes. a thought that I, I mean, had. Yes. That, I mean, yes. Yeah, that was a thought that I had when they were eating the stew. Because he started talking about, Warren started talking about the stew. He was like, this does not taste like Minnie's stew. No, he said. Or no, he said it. He, he said, said it, it was Minnie's. Yeah, stew. yeah. Because he said so, that he grew up on a plantation and he had stew all the time. And no matter who it was, no matter what the meat, it always tasted like their stew. And yeah. so he was sure that was Minnie's stew. Yeah, and it's like, and then that automatically, that automatically, you know, something happened. Yeah, you know, something happened to Minnie because if that's Minnie's stew, then Minnie was here earlier today. So what does that mean? Exactly. You know, I think. Because it comes down to, like, what happened to the bodies? What happened to the bodies of Sweet Dave and Minnie? Because they couldn't have been under the floorboards with Channing Tatum because then the whole place would have reeked, of course. Right, right. And they couldn't have been outside in the in the stables or in the back, but they could have been in the stables because there's a part... Doesn't, like, Bob bar Warren from going to a part of the stables in the beginning? Or something like that? Or he's like, oh, you don't gotta do it, I'm doing it on my own. I already did it once oh, today. I he does it again. Yeah, he doesn't bar him. He says he he says that he wants to do it on his own, and then Warren ultimately says, "I'm asked you're I'm offering you help in a blizzard. And you're gonna say no?" And he's and yeah. he says, "You're right." So that so either a the bodies are in the stable or b they put the bodies in the stew. I or at least parts of the bodies. I don't think they put them in the stew because they would have they would have uh they would have noticed it. They would have noticed a weird taste in the stew. But it was I think just you're a onto that something. I had when I was watching. I think the you're onto something. Maybe they had him in the stable because I never thought about because it's just it's a really quick line that Bob doesn't want his help in uh, putting the horses in the stable. I never thought of that. Um, that's an interesting theory, though. I I'm now gonna think about that. But um, back to uh, dialogue. I think. This is basically three hours of nonstop talking, right? Pretty much, yeah. And you're never bored. No, I feel like I feel like the 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 dialogue almost has like a rhythm to it. Definitely, it it feels like it feels like it feels like a song and dance. Exactly. It, that was what I was gonna say. Like, even if it's just people talking about, you know, even if it's just the posse making up their stories, or if it's Warren calling out Bob, or if it's you know ruth trying to trying to figure out what the hell is going on or even if it's you know uh maddox you know yelling at warren for some reason yeah there's always there's always a sense of importance in the dialogue yeah it's a it's like there's not nothing that is said in the movie is never not important which it which is a great thing to say considering it's three hours long and it's pretty much all dialogue what i what i love about tarantino so much is that you know he is so dialogue heavy but and i'm getting this from him he said that and i i agree with his statement he put he when he writes his dialogue he makes things seem like they're unimportant until they aren't so you have you have something that that is just like this just seems like random dialogue what's the point here until it comes up later which and, a lot of writers don't do they just kind of make it seem important as the film goes on and it and it also plays into like Tarantino's foreshadowing as well because it's never too heavy of foreshadowing there's always a little sprinkle of oh this might come up later I never looked. I never like looked at something in a movie. Of uh, I've never looked at something in Tarantino, at, in, like with a movie or anything like that of his, where I'm where I never go. Oh yeah, that'll come back later. I know that for a fact. Right. I always get an inkling of maybe that'll be important for later, but it's never like, it's not as heavy as like the necklace in The Evil Dead. Right. You know, automatically 
when Ash Williams hands the necklace to his girlfriend, you automatically know that that necklace is important to the story, and you need to keep your eyes on that damn thing for the rest of the film. Yeah, you know it's gonna, you know something's coming back. You know it's gonna come full circle. Whereas Tarantino kind of buries like a five-word sentence in a giant, tightly packed monologue, and tells you something important, but you don't even know it yet. Especially like like foreshadowing with the monologue from uh the from i don't know his full name it's oswald something oswaldo yeah oswaldo yes like the frontier justice versus societal justice monologue yeah you don't that does that just seems like it seems random it seems random but it seems natural coming from somebody who's a hangman exactly yeah and and it and you don't realize the significance of that monologue until the end of the movie where they hang daisy which, in my opinion, aside from the scene where Warren shoots General Smithers, that scene right there, I fucking love that scene. <laughs> yeah, you do. Part of part of my French, but I love that scene. That scene was awesome. Don't. What do you think about the poisoning scene when they're all vomiting violently? That just that that I saw that and I was like, oh yeah, that that's Tarantino. That's Tarantino. Right that the it's Tarantino in the it's tarantino to the max is what it is it's and it plays it plays fun music too while they're violently vomiting and at first you you start out going ugh, and then by the end when when john ruth has daisy on the floor and he vomits right in her face and she's laughing you're you're up you're an uproarious laughter by that point and it's the thing that makes it. It's like it's not just like vomiting, like and it's liquid. It's, it's like somebody took. It's like somebody took a fire hose and stuck it right. up their ass and pulled the thing. That you know when it just. <laughs> and that's it's what it's what make, makes me love that scene because it starts out so so low key and starts out suspenseful and then it gradually gets funny and funnier and funnier. Until John Ruth vomits on Daisy, and you're an uproarious laughter. But then she shoots John, and you're back, and you're back to, oh crap. And you can see, like, and going. Speaking of John and Daisy, going back to where um, Daisy lobs off John's arm. Oh, yeah, to that, get to the yeah. gun. <laughs> like automatically, like I was sitting on the edge of my seat at that point because. Maddox is out cold. <laughs> yeah. And Warren can't move because his junk is missing. <laughs> I love when she hacks off that arm and then she pulls it up, but the force just makes her flip over. Yeah. <laughs> That's hilarious. I I and it, I could I couldn't I definitely didn't see anything like that coming. Right? He just, she just whips it over her head and makes her fall over. But I interrupted you. What were you gonna say? No, that was it. I mean, there's that that whole like, just that whole like final like five ten minutes was just, mmm. That was just real great. I like. I love Chris Mannix's uh, monologue at the end, um, where he calls her bluff. Yeah, but when he talks about his father, and how mm-hmm. she and how she, she mentions that she has an army, and he's like, and he's like. Um, my father led an army. He led an army of Len- renegades, and he has an entire monologue on how she's such. He called her. He, he called her bluff based on right. his previous experience. Right. That's. Uh, I love that monologue. And then, and then he's just like, I don't feel so good, and he just falls back. Yeah, and it's like this movie subverts expectations at every turn. Yeah, and it, it's interesting because thinking about that monologue itself, he does not write tell anybody that his dad's the leader of the Raiders group at all until the end of the film when it's important. Yeah, you just think that that's backstory for character, right? You think you think that it's just you think that it's some kind of reputation to make Chris seem so evil because everyone's trying to make him seem like he's evil. Well, not even like evil, just like unpredictable and almost like not sane yeah he's the he's he's the jeffrey dahmer if you will of this script because no one knows what what he's capable of because um the uh john ruth says if he's a sheriff if he's the sheriff i'm a monkey's uncle yeah so 
I think I think that that uh I think that that makes Chris's character pretty tightly wrapped. And speaking of tightly wrapped, we are not tightly wrapped. <laughs> so uh we went very long for this episode, but that's because The Hateful Eight is such a great film, but also such a long film, and there's so much and more so- to talk about. Yeah, and since we watched The Hateful Eight, we kind of watched it on purpose because the next movie for this podcast, you actually might have to spend some money to go see because we're going to spend next week talking about Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, which is the ninth Quentin Tarantino movie, which means there's one more movie he has to make before he's apparently done making movies forever. Which we'll we'll see. I, I don't know whether to believe him or not. I hope that's not true. But, um, so for next... For next uh, episode, uh, I hope all of you will see Once Upon a Time in Hollywood in theaters. Please go support Quentin Tarantino. Please do not support other blockbusters that I hate. And uh, also, if you if you aren't going to go see the movie, I, I honestly don't think that you should watch the podcast for that episode because probably not because I think that movie is apparently very very good. Yeah, I've heard it's very good, and it's 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 an alternate history. So an alternate history. Yeah, so you know it's it's you know some of the some of the plot revolves around Charles Manson and Sharon Tate, right? Um, yeah. So you know Quentin being himself, he took it upon himself to rewrite history, like he did with Inglorious Bastards and Django Unchained. Um, so uh, it's an alternate history. So what I'm saying by that is that you will probably be very lost if you do not see the film. Uh, if you want to listen to it and then see the movie, whatever. But we we, we, we are saying we probably We implore not. you not to. Right. I mean, we understand, though. Ticket for a movie is 30 bucks these days. So. Oh, really? It's 30 bucks in Illinois? Or Indiana? Well, I'm being, I'm being a bit of an exaggeration, but it is pretty high. Uh, it is pretty expensive. Yeah. So, anyway, see Once Upon a Time in Hollywood starring... Leonardo DiCaprio, Brad Pitt, Margot Robbie, Timothy Olyphant, Luke Perry, Al Pacino, everyone in Hollywood that exists right now is in the movie. Um, So go see it, and then tune in next week for next week's podcast uh, about that film. Thank you, everyone, for listening. This has been Jake and Cole with Cake and Batter, and we are signing off. See ya!